Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone, and is a project of EEI, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Vietor, Vice President of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by a real expert in wildfire mitigation in John Axman, who's the Senior Manager of Transmission and Distribution Engineering Reliability at the aforementioned Idaho Power. John, welcome to The Current. Thank you, Brad. Happy to be here. Let's dig in. So uh, in recent years, we've seen the number of wildfires in Idaho really grow. Can you kick us off by giving us a brief overview of what you've been experiencing in terms of wildfires over the last few years. And maybe we can even talk some about the cause for this expansion. Well, really going back a little bit further than the last three years, we've seen our fire activity in Idaho nearly triple since the 1980s and the 1990s. Here recently in the last few years, the activity has actually been less than what we've seen in terms of acres burned compared to what we've had in other years in the last couple of decades, but we continue to see an increase. Last year, we had a roughly 440,000 acres burned in Idaho, and that put us sixth in the nation, not really a list that we want to be on. But we are seeing an increase, the combination of drought, hot weather, insect infestations. They've all led to an increase of wildfire potential. Like other Western states, the fire activity has increased and a large portion of the causes for those is human-caused. So our state is, is growing, and uh, there's potential that we're going to continue to see a wildfire be a part of our lives going forward. So you kind of said it a couple of different ways. The activity is increasing, but the amount of acreage burned has been down a little bit over the last three years. Is that a function of some of your mitigation practices and some of the work that you or the Idaho land management folks have been doing, or is it more coincidental? What's, what's going on there? You know, at Idaho Power, we've been kind of lucky where, you know, the mitigation measures we've taken, some of the practices that we've had in the past that have just been part of our operation as a utility have really paid off in terms of trying to prevent ignitions from occurring on our system and, and causing wildfires. You know, while the numbers are down, they're, they're still very significant. We still are seeing an increase compared to where we used to be. I don't really have uh, the reasons why. Human intervention or human-caused fires are a uh, main component, but lightning and weather is another component as well. So we could just be seeing some variability in weather conditions and other areas that may be contributing to a little bit less of uh, activity than what we've had in the past. I will say some of the activity we've had in the past have been extraordinarily high in terms of acres burned. You know, it's, it's all relative, kind of looking back at where we were decades ago in the 80s and 90s, we're still seeing a very significant increase in Idaho. Well, let's talk about your mitigation plans and the sort of like voluntary mitigation strategies that you're pulling together. Can you tell me a little bit about that, what you're doing, and also just kind of express how what you're doing is different maybe than what you've done in the past? Yeah. So as I mentioned in the past, we had a pretty robust inspection program for pole inspections, for treating poles, for just inspecting our system overall. 
we also had a pretty robust reliability program. Really, for us, this all started in 2017, 2018, when we started seeing what was going on in California with the Tubbs fire and the Camp fire. At that time, we really started investigating. I was in our standards department, our methods and materials department at the time, and we thought, let's start looking at some different types of equipment, different hardware that we could be using to help limit the potential for ignitions on our system. And so while we didn't have a plan at that time, we didn't really start developing our plan until 2019. We started taking steps to identify what we could do. The utility industry is a pretty tight group. We have some fellow engineers and colleagues at other utilities who were willing to share information with us, which was greatly appreciated as well. So for us, when we started developing our plan, the first step was really to help quantify risk within our service territory. We have approximately 24,000 square mile service territory with 600 customers. That includes around 33,000 miles of overhead distribution and transmission. One of the greatest challenges we had right off the bat was where do we start? Where, where do we really start focusing our efforts? And we hired a consultant to model our entire service territory and model ignition starting with respect to where our overhead equipment and power lines are located. Their modeling helped us identify high risk zones in our service territory. And those are predominantly areas that are in what we refer to as a wildland urban interface, where we generally have the potential for large wildfires to spread and also impact structures. And so that really helped us establish where do we start prioritizing our work. So we took that a step further and we began implementing different types of construction upgrades in those areas. So we're uh, upgrading distribution feeders, uh, we call it hardening, where we're going in and we're expediting the phase out or the change out of poles, of cross arms, wood cross arms, with fiberglass. We're changing out our expulsion fuses with energy limiting fuses and arresters that are less prone to failure than what we've had in the past. So we have a number of mitigation measures underway in terms of construction, but as far as what we have on paper and what we're building, it's a good thing, but we really rely on our field crews, our linemen to really make the safe choice to focus when they're out during wildfire season. So a big part of our plan is really the preventative practices that they will follow during wildfire season. We've really laid out what those are. We've conducted training and we've developed, like other utilities, we've developed what we call a fire potential index where our lines personnel are able to see what zone they're in when they're in the field. They're able to see what zone they're in and they're able to know what the fire potential is on the day that they're actually performing work. Depending on what that fire potential is, they may stop work altogether. We have certain requirements in place on days with extreme wildfire risk. So they may stop work or in other cases, if it's not an extreme wildfire risk, they may be required to do more inspections, to remain on site, to use different equipment, and also have certain tools and and fire suppression equipment available on their vehicle as well, like shovels and Pulaski's and a certain amount of water. So the hardening efforts, the upgrades, the preventative practices, they all kind of go hand in hand to help us reduce risk. We're also implementing measures to help improve the resiliency of our system. So if we have a fire that comes through, we want to be able to restore power as soon as possible to our customers. And so we're wrapping uh, wood poles with a fireproof mesh. We're also upgrading some of our wood poles to steel poles as well. And it's really all about resiliency 
and helping them, you know, stay intact if a wildfire were to come through. All right. So you said one of my, it's like a trigger word for me when we're talking wildfire. So I'm going to ask you to explain it a little bit. The wildland urban interface or the WUI. For our listeners out there that don't spend all their time thinking about fire, can you explain what the WUI is? Yeah. And there is a lot of articles that are coming out even just this week about this thing called the WUI and how fire risks are increasing. But essentially, the WUI is a zone of transition between unoccupied land and human development. It's kind of the line or the area or the zone where human development meets or intermingles with wild land and native vegetation that could be prone to a wildfire. And so when you have the combination of these two, uh, the potential of risk actually increases in those zones. I mentioned the New York Times just had an article that came out today that's really detailing this issue. We're seeing a lot of growth in the West and I can't blame people for wanting to move to Idaho. We're seeing uh, a pretty significant amount of growth in our service territory as well as throughout the state. Last year, we led the nation with 2.9% growth. And with, you know, some of these changes with uh, working from home that the pandemic brought, people are wanting to work in, in locations where they can work remotely and just be more in tune with nature. Definitely can't blame them for that. But with this development in more of these wildland areas, the potential and the risk of wildfires impacting them actually increases. So one of the things that I learned in working on the California issue in 2018, 2019, and when PG&E went into bankruptcy in part because of all the risk that was incurred as a result of wildfire, is that it's a multivariable problem. You've got population growth and people that want to be really close to nature. And so they're building into the WUVI. And one of the things that ends up being a risk is the building materials that are being utilized as these communities are developed. So on the one hand, you've got utilities that are managing all this high voltage transmission, which is certainly a fire risk. And I think those of us on the utility side of the equation understand that people don't want their trees cut, but when you're running a 700 KV line, you probably don't want it touching a tree. That's a fire risk, right? Like we, we know those things that residents aren't necessarily thinking about. And so you kind of compound these challenges with people using, you know, with local sort of restrictions, allowing for building materials to be utilized that are not flame retardant, right? Like they're not necessarily taking the precautions that you're taking and putting mesh around your wooden poles. This was the problem as we saw it developing in and around California. Are you seeing that type of behavior in some of these local jurisdictions? And then to follow on to that, are y'all working with those local jurisdictions to sort of think through and kind of figure out some materials that are maybe a little bit more flame retardant? So we are seeing the potential here. Obviously with the growth that we have, we're seeing the amount of homes in these wild and urban interface areas, they are increasing. For us, we have actually in the Treasure Valley in the Boise area here, we have some examples of what we may consider a success story where building codes and requirements from the city or the county require firewise construction. We have some fairly large developments that are taking place where the developers are installing fire breaks, natural fire breaks, native vegetation, different types of vegetation to help control 
vegetation that's more uh, susceptible. And then using the non-combustible materials, like you mentioned, there's still a risk there though. In some cases, these developments are further out. Suppression resources aren't generally as available or as quickly to respond as in other areas. So the steps that they're taking are definitely going to help, but time will tell. And I think when our customers are moving here from out of state, generally, I'm not sure that they are very aware of the potential for fire hazards. We have a lot of people moving here from California and, and it seems to be on their mind. Most of them know that, but we definitely have some opportunities for more engagement. And that's something as a company that we're working on. We're in the second year of having our wildfire mitigation plan. And so we're developing a roadmap. We're looking at, you know, future opportunities. And that is something that we're going to be taking a more active role in is education. Yeah. It's good to hear that that's, that that's your approach. I feel like one of the things I hear often is that utilities are aware of some of these challenges and they have a responsibility to talk about some of these challenges community. Like, yeah, true. And, you know, we're good corporate citizens that are investing in the communities we live in because turns out our kids work and live and go to school here too. So like, we don't want bad things to happen, but it's also, it's one of those things that's a little bit outside of our jurisdiction, but nonetheless, we know some stuff, so we might as well talk about what we know, right? So anyways, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that's how y'all are approaching. Yeah. And we have developments that are taking place right now as really, as we speak, fairly large developments with thousands of homes in the WUI area. And we've already started engaging with those developers from a utility standpoint with wildfire. I mean, it's something that if we can reduce risk right at the beginning, as part of the construction, the type of construction going underground distribution instead of overhead, it puts us all in a, a better chance of being successful. Yeah, it's huge. Maybe on a bit of a sour to, you know, one, one thing that I think we all learned in California is as these communities are being developed, there's a ton of risk that comes with it. People need to be on top of it, conscious, aware. So I think your education efforts are huge. Another thing we learned is escape routes and how evacuation routes work when some of these fires ramp up. So my expectation is you'll started to factor that stuff in as your little segment of Northeastern California continues to explode. Definitely. Yeah. Even type of communications that residents have available when a catastrophe hits, those are the type of things that we need to start as a community. We need to start thinking more about the other thing in the WUI area is, you know, newer developments, you have an opportunity to address wildfire risk, but we do have some existing areas with older construction. I imagine in California, that might be a similar situation where things were developed before wildfire risks were really there, or maybe there were a lower risk. And so fuels reduction programs, the state of Idaho, the Forest Service, the Idaho Department of Lands, the BLM, they're really working right now to come together and do a little bit more with fuel reduction programs. I know there's other utilities in the state that have partnered with the Idaho Department of Lands to team up. And to go into these elevated risk areas to try to thin them, get rid of highly flammable vegetation. Yeah. Well, when I think back to like my early introduction to wildfire, it was actually from your former governor. It was uh, Butch Otter talking about all the risk that was created because of the pine beetle. I, I think to the extent there's good news, it's in the West. This is not a new phenomena. Maybe the development, maybe the expansion further into the wooey is new, but for Westerners, fire is something that you've grown up with and learned how to manage and mitigate. 
So particularly in a state like yours, where it's a little bit easier to cut down trees than in some other places. I feel like Idaho is in a good position to combat this problem. And it's good to hear all about the coordination that y'all are engaging in. So kind of to that end, can, can you talk a little bit about that coordination? And I know you mentioned it a moment ago with BLM, et cetera, but how does the federal coordination piece work with y'all? So right now, most of our coordination has been more on the introductory side, just really seeking out potential opportunities. When we developed our plan and we worked with our consultant on identifying risk, we met with the Forest Service, the BLM, really to get feedback on areas that we're identifying as high risk. In some cases, their feedback was used to help us identify areas of high risk. And for those entities, they have a little bit different view. In some cases, it's the suppression difficulty, add to the consequence level of having a wildfire or habitat or environmental concerns. And so their feedback is really important to us in really learning more about our service territory and really where we should be targeting some of our efforts. So with that, we're kind of in the beginning stages right now, Brad, with meeting with these entities and really discussing different opportunities with regard to fuel management, fuel reduction programs. They're trying to figure this out too. There's a number of dollars that are going to be made available for certain states as part of the infrastructure grant. And so they're kind of scrambling right now, trying to determine how they're going to coordinate, how they tackle these things together. And, And I've been pleasantly surprised at the outreach that I've seen in Idaho between the Idaho Department of Lands, the Forest Service, the BLM, they're coming together and they're looking at where they can partner in specific areas in the state to reduce the wildfire hazards. It's a good point you bring it up that way. One of the features of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, one of the buckets of money was for wildfire mitigation. And I think it's 30 million or 50 million a state that gets to be invested into some of these mitigation tactics and techniques. So I'd encourage you to keep those conversations moving. So know it, it, the EEI and the kind of the national level, we're sort of looking for good examples of what states are doing, how they're putting some of that wildfire money to work. And like, as I think about grants, as I think about IJA, I think about it with respect to utilities, we tend to deploy our own capital. Like that's what we're built to do. So we're sometimes reticent to figure out how we're going to deploy other capital. But wildfire seems to be one of those opportunities where, look, there's some money that's sitting out there. Let's be thoughtful about how we can make some reasonable investments to mitigate risk. And that actually allows for room for us to go make the necessary investments, right? In a state like yours with enormous population growth, there's a ton of grid investments that need to be made. Is there some wildfire mitigation that can be taken off repairs plates uh, so we can focus more of our attention. We're working through that right now. We're trying to understand all the requirements and the potential opportunities with those grants as well. You know, going back, you, know, well, you mentioned Butch Otter with the bark beetle and, you know, that's something that the whole West is, is having to face. But with regard to mitigation for us, one of the you know key things that we're focused on is improving and expanding our vegetation management program. Meaning we're working to get to a three-year cycle where we're going into all of our distribution feeders every three years to prune. And we're also going in mid-cycle to do inspections almost as an as-needed pruning type uh, of of plan. And so that's really going to help us. And what we're seeing with the bark beetle, our our arborists are seeing changes from almost one year to the next year, meaning that they're out one year in the mountains and they're seeing 
trees that are healthy and the next year we're having to take them out. It, it, it is moving fairly quickly and it's surprising us really how quickly that problem is expanding. Well, look, it's good that you got a plan where you're checking these things out. I think that's one of the other things we've seen. I mean, there's another adjacent topic that I don't know if we have time to talk about here, but people are using new technology like drones to inspect lines, et cetera. I'm sure y'all are engaged in those types of discussions as well, but it's just practically speaking, like you got to get out there as regularly as you can to ensure that the system's prepared to deliver all the power that he's being moved. Yeah, we are utilizing some technology like drones, infrared imagery, and also exploring different technology with satellite and aerial imagery, particularly with regard to vegetation management. So the future's looking bright there. The industry has a pretty amazing amount of use cases for technology to help combat wildfires. It, it just keeps growing. We're hearing from different companies. There's startup companies that are trying to take off and there, there's a lot of great ideas out there. It's good to hear too, that companies are thinking about how they're going to use technology to solve these problems. So yeah, it all sounds great. Thanks, John. That was a robust discussion. Thanks for giving us a little update of what's going on in Idaho. We wish you well. Stick at it. You got a heck of a job ahead of you. Millions of soon-to-be Idahoans from California are depending upon you. We'll continue to do everything we can. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you. We hope you found this to be an informative 15 minutes, and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights on energy policy. To learn more about EEI and the electric power industry, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.